the book of Mark in chapter 13. And as you're arriving there, one of the things that you'll note is that tonight we'll take a, a little bit of a change of where we've been. Basically, over the last uh, couple of weeks, Jesus has been being inspected by those who are the religious leaders in the Jewish land. And at this point, um, they have inspected him to the point where they've asked him enough questions, and he's answered well every time, and they've decided that they will not ask him any more questions because he's able to answer with such wisdom that they're no longer uh, able to try to confound him because he's answering in ways that they're not planning on. And it's, they're amazed, they're marveling at his answers. So last week as we finished uh, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus had explained to his disciples to beware of those religious leaders, the ones that were questioning him. Not because they were questioning him, but because of their outward actions. It implied a, a wrong or an a wrong understanding about God, and it also implied that they didn't really have a relationship with God because they weren't humble. They weren't about the people. They were all about themselves. And if you've known anything about any leader, any leader that's really about building their own kingdom and they're not for the greater good, they're going to do things selfishly to the point that they, uh, they start to uh, offend those that are following them even. And Jesus said, Beware of these religious leaders who desire to be seen by men who rob widows' houses, and for the wrong reasons, they make long prayers in public. It's all about the outward show. And religion can become that if you're not careful. And I think it's important to realize that God didn't save us so that we could show other people that we were holy. He saved us to show that He was holy, and He was the only one that could save us. He saved us for His plans, His purposes, His kingdom. And so in order to be a part of his kingdom, we must come through a very short door. For it is said before that in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, there's a short door and many are not even willing to kneel down to go under it. And the kingdom of heaven, is it, you, you get to the kingdom of heaven through humility, through brokenness, through realizing you can't get there on, their own, on your own. But his point was that they care only about themselves. These were the people that were supposed to be feeding and leading God's flock. They instead were wolves in sheep's clothing. They're only found around the sheep in order to shear the sheep and to devour sheep once in a while. They were getting fat off of the people. They were sucking dry the resources of the people that were coming to the temple to worship by giving offerings. And Jesus, after saying this about the scribes, he contrasted by looking at those that were giving in the temple. And he noticed two things about what, the way they were giving. He didn't notice what they were giving as much as he noticed how they were giving it. And then he also noticed how much they didn't give. Remember the widow with the two mites, she had given all that she had out of her poverty, even though she didn't have anything. She brought to the Lord what, what she had because she realized it was all his anyway. And so Jesus noticed how they did it. He noticed what they gave. Not so much monetarily, but he noticed what they didn't give. And my point that I made last week was that Jesus isn't interested in how much we give or even how little we give as much as he is interested in how much of ourselves we're giving in devotion to him. And I think it's interesting because I was reading in a book this week called The Believer's School of Prayer. It's by Andrew Murray. And uh, I've been praying for, I guess, six or seven years now 
because that's how long my relationship with the Lord has gone. And the funny thing is, is you can talk to someone enough to where you get to a spot where you feel like you don't have anything to talk about. You know, uh, Kelly and I would pray every night after we would get done hanging out when we were dating, and we still do that now. And it's kind of become a religious practice, if you will. And it's something that we do every night. It's kind of a, it's a consistency thing. We try to be faithful. We try to pray together because we've heard that a family that prays together stays together. And we want, some things we talk to the Lord about, we wouldn't talk to each other about necessarily. It just comes up because it's on our mind. So we express ourselves to our Father before one another and we get unity from that because we're honest with Him in ways that we may not even be honest with each other. Not because we're trying to be dishonest, but my point is we've been praying together for almost three years now and the funny thing is is you kind of get used to it and you run out of stuff to pray or you feel like you do. And then I've noticed that as I feel like I don't know what to pray or I've already prayed it all or... It just, or I'm praying the same things over and over again, I, I kind of feel like I'm doing a fake thing. And I feel like if I'm going to pray to the Lord, I, I, I want to have something new to say, but I don't. I don't have anything new. So I started feeling bad about that, like kind of guilty. Like, I want to pray, and I know I'm supposed to, but I don't have anything to pray about. Now I don't feel like praying. Anyway, so in this book I was reading, he teaches many lessons on prayer, but there's uh, one of the first few chapters I've read so far was a huge blessing to me. It freed me up from that guilt. What he said, uh, he said, we look at prayer as a time where we have to bring something to God in order to please him. And this could be a long prayer. This could be a deep devotional prayer. Like I know this deep truth about God. And those things are all good. We express to God who he is. And, and in light of that, we express to him who we know who we are. And then we also um, can pray to Him about things we're anxious about. But oftentimes what happens is we're in a spot where we're like, I, I know I'm supposed to be praying now, but I don't know what to pray. And what He said in the book was that God's okay with that. He's not expecting you to come to Him to offer Him something like a prayer. He wants you to come and spend time in His presence, still and quiet before Him, because it's good for us. And I had never thought about that before because he's the one that spoke the earth into motion. He's the one that created it all. He's really the source of all life. He's the one that has something to offer us. Anything that we have to offer to God is really something he's given to us in the first place. So we're just giving him back what he's given us. And so there's freedom in that because when we come before him and pray, sometimes he just wants us to be there. He wants us to be there in devotion and go, Lord, what do you want to tell me? And that's freeing on many, for many reasons, but one of the reasons that he bids us to come and be in his presence isn't so much for what we have to offer. He just wants us to be there. Much like at the holidays, sometimes parents, they just want you to be around. Sometimes your kids, they, they got all their things they want to do, and you just want them to be there with you. It's the family, you know, it's family time, it's Thanksgiving. And so, you know, in the same way, God is our Father. And that's what he reminded me in the book. He said, God's our Father. He wants us to be dependent upon Him, but He also just wants us to be around. He wants us to know Him. He wants that presence. So that presence is what, where we get our, our communication with Him. It's where we get our daily bread and devotion to Him. It's where we come to the table and we get fed. It's where we get what we need to sustain us through easy days and hard days. And it's ultimately what leads us to peace through trials and circumstances when we feel like 
You know, there's just all kinds, there's too much stuff going on. However, if we never approach, we cannot receive from him that which he desires to give us. He's our father and he desires to have a child, us to have a childlike dependence upon him. So my whole point is, is that when it comes to devotion to the Lord, oftentimes we look at it like what we can give God. And what we got to realize is we don't have anything to offer him. All we have to offer to him is our lives consecrated, set apart to be used by him. And when we do that, we'll find true joy. We'll find true contentment. So in verse 1 of chapter 13, Jesus steps outside of the temple after witnessing this widow that had given her two mites, which we found out was like just a couple cents. He steps out of the temple, which is his last time that he was in the temple during his earthly ministry. And as he went out, verse 1 says, of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and he said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now you've got to realize that they're walking out of the temple, that this building has much history surrounding it. The temple was a, a, a huge, ornate building. And when it was originally built, it was actually built, it was in the heart of King David. And uh, King David had told his, uh, I guess the prophet at the time was Samuel. And he told Samuel, he said, I want to build this temple. And Samuel said, go for it. And the Lord came to Samuel and he said, no, no, King David will not build the temple. He's a man of blood. And many assume it was because he was a king of war. I would like to insert the fact that it was because of his sin with Bathsheba, and, and because not just because of that, he had been forgiven of it, but he had gone and murdered, had murdered Bathsheba's husband. And so because of that strong thing that he did that caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, he had not only blood on his hand from war, from doing the wars of God, but because he had sinned in such a mighty way, God said, I'm going to find somebody else to use. This guy, you know, I'm blessing him, I've forgiven him of his sin, but this particular thing he's not going to be able to do because I'm going to have his son do it. He actually had King Solomon build the temple. But David went ahead and took all of his time and effort. When he would went out to war, he would take all the, the, the supplies he could get from other nations. He would bring them all together. So by the time that Solomon grew up and was to build the temple, Solomon had all the stuff. And so David was a little bummed he didn't get to build the temple, but he still got to take part of it part in it. So from that point on, what happened is Solomon built the temple. God said he would rest his name there. He would dwell in that temple, although God's not so small that he would dwell in an earthly temple, but he said he would, this was the place where Israel was supposed to go to and worship him in the nation there, in Jerusalem particularly. But the disciples are walking up to this temple, and this is not Solomon's temple. What you have is Solomon his temple was destroyed, and uh, it was destroyed around, um, oh, I got out of my notes here, around 586 B.C. That was before Christ. And, and during that time, uh, what happened is they were going to captivity because they had sinned against God. They had disobeyed. They never gave the land rest. They didn't follow the simple things that God had told them to follow, and they started following after idols in the land of Canaan. And so because of that, God used these, this neighboring nation called the Babylonians. You might have heard of them. It's just a well-known nation. They were huge. And they would swallow up other nations. 
Well, God decided that he would, in his sovereignty, in his control over everything, use this wicked nation to correct his, what was supposed to be a godly nation led by him and governed by him. And so he took that nation of Babylon and he used them as a correcting rod like we would use a fly swatter or whatever you use to swat your kids when they're doing something wrong. He said, I love you too much and I've given you too much truth to let you just go off and worship these false gods. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a spanking and I'm going to put you in time out. So he took the nation of Israel, he used the Babylonians to come in and to destroy Jerusalem, to flatten it, to destroy the temple, and to take the people out of Jerusalem, which was the land God gave them. It was just a sign that he had showed them favor, that land was, and he said, you know what, this thing I've given you, I'm going to take it away for a time. You're going to miss it. You're going to see what you're missing because this is a sign of my blessing, but you haven't followed what I taught you. So he took them, the Babylonians took them back to the land of Babylon for 70 years. And meanwhile, God was using that time to punish them. Now, oftentimes people always wonder, you know, how can God let a wrathful nation, an evil, wicked nation, judge a less than wicked nation like the nation of Israel. But the reality is, is that God is in control. He can use even the, the evil, the wrath of man to praise him. There's a proverb that says that. Well, he took those people and he left them there in Babylon for 70 years. And during that time, there was unrest and the people were aggravated. And, and, but at the same time, they realized in, during that time of captivity, much like children do in a time of uh, time out, that... <laughs> They really wish they wouldn't have done what they did because they would much rather have God's blessing than be separated from their God. See, in the temple was the only place that was set up for them to be able to go and worship God. They couldn't just go to a church down the street. They all went literally to this temple, and that's where the sacrifices were offered in order for them to be forgiven of sin. And so during that time, there was no worship. There was no time to go to worship. They could sing songs, but the reality was is that they were in a foreign land. They had been taken away from God's blessing. They had been cut off from communication from the Lord. And so they desired to go back in the land. So about um, 70 years later, there was a man named Zerubbabel, and there was a scribe named Ezra. And during that time, they were allowed to go back into the land. And actually, God took a man named Cyrus and he put it in his heart to let the people go back to the land. And actually, the kingdom, I think it was Medo-Persia, they actually, and don't quote me on that, but basically, he used a foreign dignity, or a foreign uh, king, to be able to send them back to the land and actually pay for them to rebuild Jerusalem. So during that time, they went back and they built the walls. And then during the time of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple from the ruins. So it was an amazing thing. And at the dedication of the temple, when it was rebuilt, there was excitement because after 70 years of captivity, they were allowed to rebuild. But there was also much weeping because those that had known the temple when it was built by Solomon in its former glory, and it was a sight to behold according to the writings, basically they, they saw the new one and they were like, this is like nothing in comparison to the one that Solomon built. And so they were really bummed, but when they came to the temple site and they dedicated it, there were so many people praising the Lord that were excited that God was on the move and he was restoring fellowship with them. But there was a bunch of them that were weeping because it wasn't what it used to be. 
But the cool thing was is that if you listened to the crowd, you couldn't tell the difference between the weeping and the praising the Lord. So to the rest of the nations, it just sounded like there was a bunch of praising God going on, even though they were bummed that it wasn't as good as the former one. Anyway, so, so they rebuilt it, but later King Herod, Herod I, Herod the Great is what he was called, he actually, uh, trying to make a name for himself, he was kind of, uh, he was a megalomaniac, and he really uh, wanted to make a name for himself. So what do you do if you want to make a name for yourself? You build something really big that will last way beyond your years here on earth. Just like in, in Egypt, they built the pyramids, and there's still many, much of them are standing today, and everybody looks back and they go, man, those guys must have been great. Look at the huge stones. Well, in like manner, there was also this temple in Jerusalem that they rebuilt. And actually, when King Herod rebuilt it, he did it in, a, in such a magnificent way that um, it took 80 years to do all the things that he ordered to do to it. I'm not too sure that he actually even lived the entire time it took to do all the changes he wanted to make to it. He wanted to make that building beautiful. And he did. And actually, uh, Herod was trying, let's see. Uh, According to the writer, the secular historian, this was not a believer. This was a secular historian. He he was hired by the Roman government to do, uh, to, to write down annuals about, basically about the Jewish culture because they were part of the Roman kingdom. And so Josephus, what he said about the temple, he said that, the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it blinded any observer. And where there wasn't gold, there were blocks of marble of such pure white that strangers from a distance thought there was snow on the temple. It was beautiful to behold. And, and there was much more that they did inside, but they, they made all the, the instruments inside and they were all made out of gold in the Holy of Holies. And then outside of that, it was made from bronze and then outside from that, it was made from different material. But basically, this place was huge. It was magnificent. As a matter of fact, where it says there in verse 2, see what manner of stones and what buildings these are. Maybe it was verse 1. It was because of how massive the construction was of this building. Just to get an idea, some of the stones that were laid on the foundation of this thing were 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, and 15 feet deep, they were like 400 tons. And basically, they would try to move them. We couldn't move them today with cranes that we have. You couldn't have a crane big enough. And so it was huge, and they did it in such a magnificent way, so large, so large that most modern construction cranes would not be able to lift them. Archaeologists that study these things, they're still not completely sure how these stones were cut because they're so large. And... Uh, they weren't, they're not sure how they were transported and not sure how they were placed with such precision that they didn't even need mortar. Now, if you think about it, we always use mortar around our stones so you can get an airtight seal, kind of like these blocks up behind me here, and much like on brick on buildings. They're not hewn, they're not cut perfectly to fit together. But the temple had all the stones cut off site and then they brought them to the site and they were so finely cut that they would just lay them on one another and they would be airtight. And so it's pretty amazing to see the technology that they were using and the amount of time and effort that was put into building the temple. So these guys are like, they're in Jerusalem, right? And they're looking at this temple and they're going, look how magnificent this thing is 
Because they don't live in buildings made of stones. They don't live in even wood buildings. They live in these, you know, these smaller dwellings that are built on one another. And so, um, as a result of such a great structure, the temple, by the time of Jesus, was so magnificent that it actually become kind of like an idol to them. Much like many things that we build become idols to us, this became an idol to the people. They saw the temple and they go, hey, look at, look at what we have. Look at what our God has given us to worship in. And people saw the temple as a sign of God's blessing upon Jerusalem. They would even swear by the temple, much like many people today will say, I'd swear that on a stack of Bibles. You know, it's, it's, they would swear by the temple because it was such a, a fixture that was so permanent to them. See, they were used to living in dwellings that weren't permanent, but the temple was to be there, it was to remain. And so this thing was built in a strong way. And they, they had much pride about the temple and it subtly began to mean more to the people than even their relationship with God. And that's a problem. Anything in our lives that God gives us, He gave them the temple, it's not a bad thing. But if it becomes more important to us than even our relationship with God, it's called idolatry. And God's not, He's not keen on that. So eventually it was where they came to, instead of commune with the Lord and to worship, they came to marvel at what man had accomplished. And so this is the problem. So in verse 2, Jesus answers his disciple and he says, look, yeah, look at these buildings. Yes, they are wonderful. They're pretty neat. But here's what I want you to know. One day, they'll be brought down and destroyed. Specifically, there will not be one stone left on another and that will not have been thrown down. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking? If they're looking at the stones we're talking about here, 50 feet wide by 25 feet by 15 feet deep. These stones are huge. They're going, what do you mean they're going to be toppled over? What do you mean that somebody's going to destroy this? This thing's never been moved. There's nothing that's going to move this structure. Much like the people that built the Titanic. This, it will never be sunk. Impossible. We made it from steel. It's got all these different chambers. They had all these plans. But man's plans come to nothing when God says it. You know, it's, it's just nothing is unsinkable. And what he's going to come to the conclusion of at the end of this chapter is heaven and earth even, though they seem so permanent, they will pass away, but my words will remain forever. God's word remains forever. It's the only thing that can be sustained. Our homes, they'll rot. Our cars, they'll break down. The tires will dry rot. But God's word, it remains forever. Let me ask you, what do you think is in your life that will remain forever? What can you trust in? Because I think oftentimes the things that we trust in are really things that are temporary. They'll rust. Our clothing, even moths will destroy it. If we don't use any of our stuff, it will wear out, whether we use it or not. You know, I grew up in a household where you, know, you don't shut the door, don't slam the door, and don't open it and close it a million times because the thing will wear out. Well, if you leave it sitting there and you don't use it, it'll still wear out. And that's the reality about everything that we put our trust in. But... Interestingly enough, Jesus had said here, not one stone will be on top of another. My question for you is, how? How's that going to happen? If even our modern day cranes can't lift them, what are they going to do? So, Jesus speaks this to his disciples around 33 AD. Okay? And remember that this temple was not finished until about 63 AD. So this is about 30 years later, give or take. 
But then seven years after its completion, this is what Jesus is talking about. In 70 AD, there was a widespread Jewish revolution that took place in the land of Israel and the Rome, against the Romans in Palestine, and the rebels enjoyed a couple of early successes against Rome. They, they had a little skirmish here and there with Rome, and they didn't like the fact that Romans were in charge in those days. And one of the reasons is that Rome, being over Israel there, caused them to not be able to execute their own law. They were under the law of the Romans, so they couldn't even do capital punishment to murderers. They had lost many of the things that God had given them to be able to make judgments. But ultimately, after these couple of skirmishes, you can imagine Rome being a gigantic empire and Israel not really being that great of a nation. They would cause a couple of skirmishes, make the Romans mad, and it's like making a pack of dogs angry. You might mess with one of them, but he's going to bring all his friends back. And so Rome brings back a bunch of people, and ultimately they crush the Jews. And they did this in 70 AD, and they even, when they did that, they leveled the temple, just as Jesus had told his disciples would happen. And not only that, but the temple was completely destroyed. The stones of the temple were no longer on top of one another, but they had been cast aside. But how and why? So there's a couple of stories that circulate, but the one that's the most common that I read said there, um, um, what's it say? Apparently, what happened is that when the city of Jerusalem was falling to the Romans, the last surviving Jews of the city fled to the temple because it was the strongest place to hide. Most secure building in the city. Now remember, what we just talked about, they trusted in the temple. So this was their fortress. Now if you read the Psalms, in, in, in most of the Psalms, you'll see this phrase that says, A mighty fortress is our God. And actually somebody this morning in prayer read this Psalm that said, uh, the, the Lord alone is my shelter. He alone is my strength. He alone is my strong tower. He's the one that can watch over me. He's the only one I can find my rest and my shelter in. But they went to this building and Roman soldiers surrounded it. And one drunken soldier apparently started a fire that soon engulfed the entire building. You're saying, well, what do you mean it engulfed it? The entire building's made of stone. Well, what they did was they threw a torch into the Holy of Holies. Now, if you remember the story about when Jesus is crucified, there's the veil there that was torn in two, separation between man and God, all of a sudden ripped open when Jesus is received, into, you know, his, his payment for our sin was received, and the, the barrier that was between us and God, that veil was ripped. Well, that veil was still in there. They had sewn it back together because they were like, no, no, Jesus... You know, he wasn't really God, and, and we, need, we still need a high priest and all this stuff. So they sewed the temple back, or the, not the temple, but the, the um, veil back together. But what happened is when he threw that torch into there, this drunken soldier, the whole thing caught fire. Now inside the temple are all these instruments that are made out of gold. We talked about how on the outside of the temple there was all these gold fixtures. So what they did was they, all that gold melted down when the fire caught and it got in between all the stones of the temple. So the Roman soldiers, being greedy, said, you know what? We want all that gold. We just sacked the city. That's how we get paid. We get all the stuff. And so they start ripping apart these stones and taking all these foundational stones and moving them by their brute force. And they got all the gold. 
But isn't it funny how God can use man's wrath and his drunken stupor to destroy the temple, but also to create and cause his prophecy to be fulfilled that said the temple will be destroyed and all the blocks will be taken off of one another. And so Jesus' words are fulfilled in that. And I thought that was pretty amazing because that was in 70 AD. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. They said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So Jesus and his disciples, they head back over to the Mount of Olives. Now they were staying over on the Mount of Olives because they were staying with three people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that he had raised from the dead, according to John. So they're staying on the Mount of Olives because this is one of the kind of the suburbs of Jerusalem. And they're staying there because they couldn't stay in Jerusalem. This was the time of the Passover. They couldn't get in and out. So they would go in during the day and then they would come out at night and kind of stay at their hotel like we would do if we were going to stay in a big city. And of course, it's cheaper to stay out of the city so you can stay with some friends. That's what I like to do when I go on vacation. Rather than pay the cut, you know, the really high rates, I'll just leave town for the night and then go back in the morning. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. And so that's why he was going back over to the Mount of Olives. But when he gets over to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is actually a mountain that's right outside the city of Jerusalem. And this is where he gives his, what they call the Olivet Discourse. Basically, he's explaining what's going to happen at the end of times. But as he's looking, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And you've got to realize the Mount of Olives is just close enough where you can see the whole city of Jerusalem. You can see the temple. It's right across the Kidron Valley. But it, the Mount of Olives is also 100 feet taller than the city of Jerusalem, which is set on a hill. So it's the perfect vantage point to get a good picture of what's going on in Jerusalem. So as they're sitting there, the disciples, four of them, approach Jesus with two questions. Number one, when will these things be? Remember, they're like, remember that heavy news you told us in Jerusalem that the temple is going to be destroyed? When's that going to happen? And number two, what will be the sign when these things will take place? In other words, can we get a little forecast? We know this thing's coming. If you know what's going to happen ahead of time, can you at least let us know what it's going to look like before that happens? And so Jesus starts going off on this, what seems like a rant of prophecy. Now, God knows things that are going to occur ahead of time, not because he's a fortune teller, but because he's above time. Remember, Jesus spent time with his father all the time. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the alpha, the omega. And so he knows what's going to happen, what's going to take place before it ever happens. So he gives his disciples, he tells them these things, so that when they do take place, they'll know again, wow, he really, he really knew his stuff. He really knew what was going to happen. So he says, what will be the sign when these things will take place? Now the word sign there isn't like show us a miracle like the Pharisees were saying. They weren't saying, hey, show us a sign to prove that you're God. What they're saying is, give us a sign. What's it going to look like? Like we would say, hey, uh, if someone was giving us directions to get to a place, we'd say, what's uh, an indicator that we're almost there? Like if you're going to drive down a gravel road, okay, well, it's about four miles down that gravel road. Well, how do I know when I'm getting close? Well, you need a little marker. Well, there's a low water bridge, or there's a tree that's really shaped funny, or I put up some balloons on my mailbox, right? There's an indicator. And so in the same way, God, uh, through Jesus here, is going to give them a, uh, he's going to give them some of the signs. 
And it's a heavy question they're asking because he's going to tell them a little bit more than they're probably expecting. They're saying, what's it going to look like before the temple's destroyed? And he gives them that. But then he goes much further to point kind of to what's going to happen at the end of times, the end of the world. And we oftentimes think in prophecy that when someone says something, you can kind of just interpret it any way you want. But the reality is, is when someone gives prophecy, and we'll get into this more when we get into the Old Testament, they're basically, there's usually two elements. One's a near response for the people that are listening, something that's going to occur within their days. And then there's usually some sort of foreknowledge or some prophecy of something that's going to happen down the road. Now, I was trying to think of a way to explain this the other day, but basically it would be like looking at a mountain range. Now, if you're 100 miles away from the Colorado Rockies, whether you've been there or not or seen a picture, it all looks like you've just got a bunch of mountains that are all lined up. Like if we made one of those boxes with our kids and, and cut out the horizon, you'd just have a bunch of mountains that were right in line with one another. But the reality is, is once you get closer to those mountains, what you realize is that there's a mountain here, a mountain here, and then there's a range behind it that's taller, and sometimes there's one in between that's shorter. So the reality is, is in a timeline, this is the near event, and this is the far event, but when you're far away, all you see is a bunch of mountains. And so what Jesus is giving them here is prophecy, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to take place at the same time. So that's one of the hard things about prophecy because you read it and you're like, was this for the people that he was talking to or was he telling them something they didn't even need to know but they needed to write down for people later or what's going on here? But Jesus has just given them something really close where he says the temple's going to be destroyed and there's not going to be one stone on top of another. But then he also gives them one or a bunch of signs that will happen. But they're ones that will take lots of time to unfold. So it says there in verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say. This is when he begins to say, because he's got a lot to say. He says, listen, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Notice that word there in verse 8, beginnings. That's the beginnings of sorrows. And the word sorrows there is actually the word for birth pangs. Birth pangs are basically what you get when you go, okay, it's time to go to the hospital. The baby's coming. But what do we know about birth pangs? They don't mean the baby's coming imminently. They mean that the baby is on the way. And so sorrows there is just signs showing that the time is near. And so he gives them those. Verse 9, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it's not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated for all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. 
So he gives them signs of what will happen before the end of time. And these signs are not exciting things. They're scary if you really think about it. And what happens oftentimes is that God gives us a vision into what's going to happen like these things and we get overwhelmed by them. So in the first part, he gives the signs of what will happen as it comes towards the end. But then he gives them instruction. Here's what's going to happen to you specifically, apostles. He says, they're going to drag you before councils. You're going to speak before dignitaries. But don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you're going to say because at that time, I'll give you the words. I will give you the ability to be bold before these these people. What you'll notice is that in the New Testament, you'll read, even in the book of Acts, that Paul went through most of this. He was beaten for the name of Christ. He was taken before councils. He was brought back to life, it seems, during one of his uh, being stoned almost to death or to death and What's funny is that God gave him utterance as he needed it when he stood before guys even like Caesar, who was the king of all Rome. And so he takes these guys and he tells them all these things, but he says, just because all these things will take place, and if you look at the list, and we're going to look at it here in a minute, those things are happening now. So oftentimes what happens is people go off the deep end, they go, it's all going to go. We may as well just set up shop and, and go hide in a bunker. But what he tells them in the midst of that, don't get overwhelmed by it. Here's some things that you can continue to do. So he says there, the signs that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming. I'm just going to point out a few. Verse 5 and 6 says, many will come and claim to be Jesus, deceiving many. This happens already. (coughs) Number two, wars and rumors of wars will be many. That's in verse 7 and 8. We've got that. There's wars going on all over the world. And there's rumors of the greatest of the world wars. That's already happening. Number three, earthquakes, famines, and disturbances will all be widespread. Now, earthquakes and famines have always taken place and troubles and trials. But the reality is is that they are increasing in the amounts of them happening and the concentration. They're happening in places that they've never happened before. And so this is another point. Number four, the enemies of the Lord will deliver up Jesus' disciples to be questioned and beaten. And that happens. We see that in the news all the time, especially in third world countries, especially in Muslim countries. You see a lot of that. Jesus said it would happen, and it's happening. Number five, there will be those who will betray their own families and have them put to death. In the Muslim culture, if you come and you convert from being a Muslim to being a Christian, many times they'll have what they call honor killing so that the honor of the family won't be taken away. They'll kill their family members. They won't try to win them back to Muslim to be a Muslim. They'll kill them and they'll put them to death in order to keep the family in honor and in order to not be desecrated by having a Christian of all people in your family. That happens. Number six, Jesus' disciples will be hated by all men, all for his name's sake. Verse 13. So, His disciples will be hated by all for his namesake. And that happens. So these are the things. These are the signs that we're coming towards the end of the age. That the time is short. But here's what we're as God's people to do in the meantime. Don't be overwhelmed by those things. But here's what we can do knowing that the time is short. And that Jesus at one point or another is going to come back. We want to be ready. We can't live. We can't live our lives as if this world is permanent like the disciples were living as if the the temple was permanent. He says, this thing's going to burn. 
In the meantime, how many people are you going to take with you? So in verse 5, one of the things that we can be doing as Christians is that we can know Jesus. If you know the true Jesus of Scripture, you'll be able to tell when you see a fake. People come along and they say, hey, I'm Jesus. You can go, no, you're not. Jesus was born in Nazareth. Were you born there? No. Oh, okay, well, you're not Jesus. Number two, you can be focused. Don't be distracted by wars and rumors of wars. Verse seven, these things must take place is what Jesus said, but the end is not yet. But let these things be the light that turns on in order to warn you that you need to get gas, to go get gas very soon before you run out. You know, that little warning light in your car turns on. What do you do? You go get gas. You don't go, up, oh, shut it off, we're done. No, you, you go, hey, we need to get to a gas station fast. And so the Lord, he's imploring to them, hey, the time's coming, be ready, and, and, and be filled with the Spirit. Be getting to know the Lord. Be ready for His return. Number three, be prepared. Widespread earthquakes, famines, and tribulations are the beginnings of sorrows, according to verse 8. Sorrows also, I already said that, means birth pangs. We prepare for birth, right? The whole time that the mom is pregnant, there's preparations taking place. You, you have a doctor lined out. You know what hospital you're going to. People start buying you clothing and, and the bottles and all the stuff that you never thought you'd need. You get ready. So don't freak out, but get ready. Number four, another, uh, the last thing that I'm going to say that we need to be doing is be ready to tell everyone the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 through 11. Verse 10 says, preach the gospel to all nations. That must take place. Trust the Lord to give you the words to testify of God's grace. Don't be worried about whether or not you're going to know what to tell people about Jesus. Just tell them what he's done in your life. You don't have to get up there and preach a sermon. Just tell them, hey, this is what God's done for me. He saved me from my sins. Don't be ashamed of that. That's the power of God unto salvation for all that will listen. And then when those closest to you forsake you or betray you or even hate you for the sake of Jesus Christ, don't look back. Keep going. It says there at the end of the, that what we read in verse, I guess it was 13, he or she who endures until the end will be saved. You know, trials, tribulations, those happen. But you got to keep going. Keep fighting the good fight. Now you might be thinking to yourself, this stuff that Jesus has told his disciples so far in chapter 13 of Mark, it's pretty intense, right? And I agree. This is scary stuff. They asked what would be some indicators of the time when the destruction of Jerusalem would come. And the indicators seem to be the things that you and I are witnesses of here and today. But the reality is, people all over the world are persecuted for professing the name of Christ. Natural disasters are happening more often each day, and many are even killed by their own families in Muslim countries. But the reality is, is the good news is news that's good whether those trials are going on or not. And the reality is, is that we have this time that we've been given on this earth, and we can accomplish all the things in the world, but the only thing that we get to take with us are the people that we share the gospel with. And so instead of being like those that hear these prophecies and go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do and panic, don't panic. I, uh, I used to be really afraid of the water. And this guy spent probably two or three weeks with me going to the Civic Center and he taught me how to swim. I was like 18. And what happened was while I was going through that whole thing, I would be in the water and instead of 
swimming, I would think about all the things that could happen if I drowned. And the thought of being under the water and not able to breathe just made me feel, oh my gosh, you know, like it would make anyone feel. But rather than let that motivate me to learn how to swim, I panicked. I took that information and I just focused on it. And many people do that. They take prophecy like this and they, they go, oh man, it's all going down. What are we going to do? I got to do this, that, and the other. But what they don't do is focus on Christ. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're delivered before people that beat you and put you under trials. He said, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words. So he basically said, don't focus on the trial. I already told you, that's coming. But be focused on my son. Be focused on me because I'm going to use that trial to reach others for the kingdom of God. And so we, just like that, as Christians, can hear these prophecies, know that they're taking place, rest in the fact that Jesus knew they were coming, and his word was given to us to prepare us for that. So when it does happen, you may believe, and you may continue in faith going, this isn't my home. This is going to go down, but my home's in heaven, and it's a permanent city. Abraham's whole life was him focusing and saying he lived a life of faith and he focused on the fact that he was dwelling in tents looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And that's what he spent his whole life looking for. You know what happened on the day of his death? He found it. Because he was found faithful. He walked with the Lord his whole life. So may we be those that do the same. Take the, the word of God seriously, literally, that it's going to take place. And then also... Don't put our trust in temples. Don't put our trust in people. I mean, we have to trust people based on having relationships with them. But our main focus, our main trust should be in Jesus Christ because he told us these things would happen. And he told us these things to comfort us knowing that we would need to know that he was in control when they took place. So uh, hopefully that's a comfort to you tonight. Father, thank you so much for how it is that you take your word and and you speak things into our lives that sometimes I don't believe that the disciples were even ready to hear most of what they were told. But when they were told that, he told them later that when he died and was crucified, that he would bring these things to their remembrance so that they would know that he was the Son of God, so that they would believe. And so, Lord, I thank you for being God over time and being willing to tell us things before they took place so that when they do take place, Lord, help us to trust you in the trials. Help us to trust you when we don't have nearly as many freedoms as we have today. But Father, thank you more so that you are greater than the temple. You're greater than this earth. Lord, that you are providing for us a heavenly dwelling place, not made by man's hands, so that one day we could dwell in fellowship with you and, and experience worship in a greater way than we ever will be able to here on earth. But Father, I just uh, thank you for your word and that you desire to grow us in the grace and the knowledge of your Son so that we can have comfort in this world though we're surrounded by trials. So Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here tonight that needs comfort in trials, that you would remind them that you are the God of their situation as well and you're going to use it for your glory and you're also going to be there with them to comfort them. Lord, thank you that you're here with us. In Jesus' name. Let's sing one more song. Amen.